Well, good morning, South Valley Community Church. We are here for week number two, sort of doing this online church type of thing. And last week I talked about the goodness of God. And if you didn't get a chance to, to watch that, please go back and, and listen. Um, and if you did get a chance to watch it, know that we're a week later and the moon is still round. God is still good. He's still in charge. He's still in control. He's still king. What I'd like to do this week is, is almost do a part two to that message and talk about the goodness of God, but from a different angle. And the reason why I want to do that is this. Um, in moments like this, as our stress goes up, as our anxious thoughts go up, as our worry goes up, there is going to be uh, a temptation to not trust God. See, it's one thing to believe in the existence of God. The Bible says even, even the devils do that. Even Satan believes in, in God. For the Christian, we have to trust this God. And if we are going to trust this God, then it is absolutely essential that we deep in our bones, deep in our heart, believe he not only exists, but that he's good. In other words, the, the logic of it goes like this. You need to believe in God. You need to do more than believe in God in times like this. You need to trust him. But if you're going to trust him, then you have to know that he's good. And so I'd like to almost do a part two and talk to you about the goodness of God, but from a different angle. And the angle that we'll get, the angle that we'll take is from the book of Genesis, chapter one, verse one. Because the goodness of God begins on the very first page of the Bible in the very first words. So the Bible begins with beautiful Hebrew prose and poetry. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God. And what's, what's interesting is that the text goes on to say that this God creates both the heavens and the earth. And it's, it's not that the language is working in a special, unique way. It's not saying that God creates heaven, one reality, and then earth, this other reality. Heaven and earth are function in a way that communicates a merism, which is a way of saying both objects and everything in between. So it's a way of saying uh, God created not only heaven and not only earth, but everything in between those two things. Or God created everything that is existing, the sum total of reality, the sum total existence, anything that could possibly exist or is existing, God has himself created. So nothing is outside of his creation, except of course for him. And then the text goes on and it says, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now this might not stand out to us as modern people, but there's something incredible going on here. Something so incredible that this is revolutionary, radical, grand, groundbreaking territory that we're standing on. See, in the time the Bible was written, there was many other creation stories that talked about the origins of the universe. And in all of those creation stories that are contemporaries of the biblical account, there is multiple gods. And these multiple gods are at war with each other. They're fighting. And oftentimes, they're fighting over the waters. And the waters aren't peaceful. They're chaotic. 
And so for one example, in the Babylonian Enuma Elish, there's, there's two primordial deities, Apsu and Tiamat, and they give birth to, to children, these mini gods, but the mini gods don't like mom and dad. So they rage war against their father and mom gets upset. And all of a sudden, the kind of like the, the Babylonian pantheon is, is, is at war with itself. And you say, what, what, what relevance is that? It's this. In the biblical account, you only have one God. There's not multiple gods. There's one. He is the only one. And there's not war. There's peace. The spirit of God hovers over the face of the waters. And it's this way of making the claim over and against all the other cultures of the day that there indeed is only one God. And this is what we'll call the first radical claim of Genesis chapter one. There's one God. You know, 2,000 years of Christian history, we, we, we take that for granted. But there are not many gods who have many different types of powers. You don't have to worry about this God and their power here or this God and that power here. There's one God and he has all the power. There's no one else but him. Genesis goes on. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, one of the patterns that appears in the book of Genesis chapter one is this theme of God creating things and then naming them. And again, it's sometimes missed by the modern ears, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture the Bible was written in, when you name something, that meant you had dominion over it. You had authority over it. So the biblical authors want you to see that God is not only creating everything, he is naming everything. This is called day. This is called night. This is called land. This is called sea. Because the biblical authors want you to know not only God as creator, but the one who has authority, power, and dominion over all things. And there's only one person that has that. Goes on. Genesis 1, 9 and 10. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Key word here, good. And this brings us up to another theme or pattern in Genesis 1 that is again making a radical revolutionary claim. It's the claim number two is that God is good. So the first claim was that there's only one God. And the second claim is that this one God is good. This is incredibly important. I mean, people in the time the Bible was written in, they not only believed in multiple gods, but in the midst of believing all of the, in all of those gods, you didn't know if these gods were good. You didn't know if they were for you. In fact, for the most part, they weren't for you. They were against you because they weren't good. Um, in some of the stories, the gods create human beings as slaves because they don't want to work. And so at the heart of these other stories are gods and goddesses who are not good. They don't care for humanity. They don't love them. But in the biblical account, Day after day, God is creating things and calling them good because he's preparing an environment for humans to live in. And he wants this environment 
to be good. One of the interesting things in the, in the stories of the gods and goddesses of the ancient world is that they're often more immoral than the human beings are. They, they behave in worse manner. They're not good guys. But Genesis says there's one God and he indeed is good. Genesis 1.16, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. This is another way of working out those two claims that we just talked about. And again, it's so easy to miss. But have you ever wondered why Genesis just doesn't say, oh, this is where God made the sun and this is when he made the moon? Why, why does it take this language of a great light and a lesser light? Well, the two Hebrew words for sun and moon, shamesh and yare, um, are very similar sounding to gods and goddesses that represented the sun and moon in the surrounding cultures. So when you said the word sun in some of the cultures surrounding the biblical authors, that word sun was actually the same sounding word to the actual name of the sun god. So rather than even using the word sun, the biblical author, so we're not going to say the word sun. We're not going to say the word moon because in the creation account, we don't want any appearance of foreign deities in our story. We don't even want to make it sound as if the sun God and moon God are at work because Genesis point is there's only one God. He's a good God and he has dominion over all things, including the greater light and the lesser light, the sun and the moon. So these themes keep repeating themselves again and again and again. Genesis 1.20, And God said, Let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, the emphasis is good. What's interesting in this passage is it says God creates the great sea creatures. Hebrew word here for sea creatures is tananim. And although the ESV translates it as sea creatures, probably a more honest translation of tananim is sea monsters. And you may be saying, like, sea monsters? Does the Bible actually believe there's, there's, there's monsters in the sea? And the, the question is, is sort of a modern question being imposed upon an ancient text. Because the question isn't whether or not there exist sea monsters. The question is, did the people of the ancient Near Eastern world think that there were some big giant monster-like sea creatures in the water? And were they scary sea creatures? And the answer to that is yes. And I would, and I would submit to that. Modern people should think that way too. Because some of the stuff we have in our sea is more than just sea fish. I mean, it is monster-like. And so the difference between modern people and ancient people is modern people don't fear this. Like we study it, we send a submarine down, we take pictures of it, we watch a, a National Geographic episode on it. But for ancient people, the beast of the sea were something to be feared. These were great sea monsters. And oftentimes these great sea monsters were, were worshipped and deified and given godlike powers. And so Genesis, again, wants its readers to know this. Whatever's in the ocean, 
whatever's in the sea, whether it's just a giant blue whale or it's a sea monster, whatever is there, you need to know that God created it. God has dominion over it. God has authority over it. So whether or not the fear is a real legitimate fear or just a perceived or invented one, Genesis tells you, do not fear that God is in control. Now you could sort of at this point probably read between the lines here, right? Whether people should be legitimately terrified or it's a perceived fear is irrelevant to how the the Christian responds. The Christian's default position is to know there is only one king, there is only one authority. He has dominion over all things. He is the creator of heaven and earth and everything in between. And he's not just a powerful being who exists, he is a good God that you can trust. Let's continue. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now this sort of brings it all together and what I've been hinting at along the way is Genesis wants its readers to hear this message. There's one God, and he is a good God. And he's creating a world and an environment for his special creation to live in. And his special creation are the humans, the ones who bear the image of God. And so this leads to the the third radical claim of Genesis, is that God is for humanity. He's for his image bearers. The whole point of Genesis is that there's one God, he's a good God, and he's created a world for human beings to flourish in because he is for humanity. He's for humans, not against them. He's for humanity, not against them. This is of utmost importance for us to understand. God loves his image bearers and he's created a, created a world for us to flourish in. And these image bearers are distinct and yet a part of creation. I mean, they're a part of creation, but they're distinct in that they uniquely bear the image of God. And this is an important message for us to hear today Um, that all human beings are made in the image of God. Because our culture will typically kind of not care about the edges of humanity. And what I mean by that is for the unborn, for the child in the womb, we may say things, there's no child, it's okay, it's just a fetus. And the image of God is, is kind of not taken seriously. And then simultaneously, you might hear things like, mm, this virus, you know, it's not that big of a deal because it only hurts the extremely elderly and, and young people will be okay. As if to say, on the opposite end of those in the womb, well, it's, it's okay that it's hurting and making older people suffer. We're, we're cool because, you know, as 
you're in the, the, the prime age. And it's like, what? that's not how Christians think. That's not how Christians talk. Everyone from birth, from the womb to the grave matters precisely because they're made in the image of God. So to sort of sum up what Genesis is trying to do, it's telling you there's only one God. There's not multiple gods. And the good news is, is this one God is good. And the even better news is that one good God is for you. He is not against you. Now, a question arises. What do people leaving Egypt, entering into a desert wasteland without food or water need to know? And I ask that question for this reason is, the book of Genesis is written by Moses. And Moses, as he's writing this down, is receiving this revelation from God as the people of Israel are leaving slavery and bondage in Egypt. It's the Exodus period. So what is before the people of Israel? When Moses is writing this, they are going to be entering into a desert wasteland without food or water for 40 years. So what do you need these people to know? When you are walking into uncharted territory, when you are walking into a wasteland, when you're walking into a desert and you don't know if you have enough food, you don't know if you have enough water, you don't know if you have what it takes to survive the situation. What do those people need to hear? The people of Israel needed to hear, there's only one God. He is a good God and he is for you. He is not against you. Now, out of that ancient question, a modern question arises. What do people living today need to know? What do people living today need to know? And so, you know, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. We need to know the same thing, the same thing. Because we're no different than Israel wandering into an unknown future. And my encouragement to all of you who are watching this is in three weeks, we may look back at this situation and go, oh my goodness, that was, that was weird. So glad we're out of that. Or it could be two months from now and you're still watching me on a screen. The question isn't exactly how long are we going to be doing life like this? The question is, is there a God? Is he good? And is he for us, not against us? And on page one of the Bible, the scriptures give you what you need to know. There is one creator and maker of all things who had no beginning of days, who will never know end of days. He is the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the first and the last. He is all powerful and he has dominion over all things. And you don't have to worry like he's out to get you because he's a good God and he's for you, not against you. And so as we go through this time together, please, Lean on these truths. It's going to be so easy to believe all the stuff going around in your head. Whether it's a sea creature, a sea monster, a virus, or a dip 
in your investments, God is still king and he's still good and he's still for you, not against you. Now, in the biblical story, after God creates this amazing world for human beings to flourish and something goes terribly wrong and human beings rebel against this one God who is good and for them and not against them and human beings sin and sin spirals out of control and it affects the whole world. And at this point, if you, know, if you or I were God, you'd be like, look, I was good. I was for you. I created this great place for you to live in and you all rebelled against me. You sinned. You don't want anything to do with me. I'm gonna just hand you over and whatever hell breaks loose on earth, that's what you get and that's what you deserve. But this one God who has been consistently good and for humanity, not against him, goes even further. He doesn't just create and back off. Because of sin, God himself enters into the human condition. And it's at the cross of Christ that we see the ultimate goodness of God displayed. Because God was for us and not against us. And when he came to save us, we were not for him. We were against him. It's the great inversion. Humanity was not for God. We were against him. And so what happens? Human beings gather with evil intent and have the son of God crucified. But it's precisely in that moment that we see the faithfulness and the goodness of God displayed. Because if you ever doubt the goodness of God, if you ever doubt the faithfulness of God, if you begin to worry or stress about, can I trust this God? Is he a safe God? Look at what you need to know is that God himself goes to the cross on your behalf. And there the goodness of God is displayed for all time, for all of humanity. And friends, whether in person together or watching a video, you know God is good because the cross of Christ. That's where you see how good and faithful he is. So be encouraged. I know that could be difficult in times like this, but our biggest problems have already been cared for. Our biggest debts have already been paid. Our greatest sickness that could ever harm us has already been cured. And it's because the goodness and faithfulness of God and the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we want to acknowledge what your son has done. He is good and he is faithful. Thank you that you not only created the world, but that you entered into the world to suffer on our behalf, to, to take sin and nail it to the cross. And so, Lord, by your spirit, we ask for encouragement. We ask for peace that transcends human understanding, Lord. Today is a day that you have made, and it's a good day because you are alive and you are on the throne, and you love us and you're for us and not against us, Lord. So we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.